HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today we're going to be talking about cider, American cider, you know, hard cider made from apples. It continues to surprise me. It's just the variations from sweet to dry, the tastes, it's really had come, it's come into its own. I mean, it's having a bit of a, what can you say, a revival. And it really is delicious, much as I didn't really think I was going to like ciders so much, I have come to really appreciate them, really appreciate the nuances and, and, and how refreshing they are. And, you know, they've got a little bit of alcohol, not too heavy, and that makes it nice too. And not only are they delicious, but they are historic. It's America's first popular alcoholic beverage. And it's made was made originally from apples brought over the Atlantic from England in the colonial days. And my guest today, cider specialist and sommelier Dan Pucci, and food journalist and cider specialist Craig Cavallo, have really done a deep dive into into cider, its history, the nuances, the territories, the terroirs, um, and the regions where cider is important uh, to the agriculture. So I welcome them today. Welcome, guys. Thanks so much. Nice to be here. Thanks, Linda. Your book, you know, has been called a well-researched roadmap. And that, in terms of you know, the metaphor roadmap, but also you do point out all the interesting um, areas and regions where cider is is being produced and is a lot of a lot of changes are coming about in that and but first what i want to talk about are the changes i mean to what do you do attribute all this modern interest and revival of cider making it seems like every time i turn around there's another little cider bar and and cider you know center popping up what's what do you think what what brought that about uh, I'll start there. Thanks for having us again. Um, so this is Dan. We're talking about 
what kind of started cider today. Um, it's kind of a combination of a few things. So a, there's a lot of, uh, downward pressure in the cider in the commercial apple world apple farmers have had probably one of the hardest times uh any far- farming is hard and apple farmers have had it the worst um one of my best examples of this is that um in the book we talk about steve wood who's a founding cider maker at F- poverty lane orchards in farnham hill in vermont in uh, new hampshire he um in 19, 1970s, he was getting around $40 a bushel for tiny two-inch Macintoshes that he would export to the UK. Uh, t- today, the price for apples is around, for like high-quality apples here in Hudson Valley, it's about $40 a bushel. So the price basically has stayed exactly the same for over 50 years, um, which is crazy. Not just to inflation or anything like that, so the value of the product has declined a lot. Um so because of that, we've seen we've seen orchards on the country look to find new ways to innovate. And in the past, the innovation came in the place of trying to be more efficient with your fruit, trying to grow more of it for less money, trying to do more of it on less land. But at certain points, people were competing at a competing against themselves and lo- dropping prices farther and further and further. So in the eighties and nineties, in the last ten years, we've seen orchardists on the country really. Uh, looking to cider as a way to create more value and create sustainable businesses for orchards around the country uh, and really create a really excellent and exciting value-added product to use for their fruit. At the same time, we've seen a large rise of small estate cideries that are looking and finding how to grow grow fruit and grow and grow a farm on a small scale, um, which, in, which needs to include some kind of value-added product. Or we have people who are just simply curious about cider and exploring the potential of this amazing beverage and uh, putting in trees and exploring and researching and diving down the rabbit hole. Um, I think cider is really exciting because of that rabbit hole. Uh, I dragged Craig down this rabbit hole a number of years ago, and he can speak to how deep that that hole goes because he now owns a a restaurant called the Golden Russet Cafe, So, (laughs) which was definitely not the concept when he started planning that thing. Well, uh, Craig, maybe you can tell, uh, uh, talk about how, why Dan is laughing at the golden russet. What, you know, what does the golden russet mean to you? I mean, the type of apple, but yeah, um, yeah talk about that a little bit. Uh, well, I think, so Dan, <clears throat> uh, short history of why I, I sort of am on the, uh, on, the, on the chat here with Dan and, and Linda with you. Uh, Dan asked me as a writer many things that I've done over the years. I was a writer for a while. Uh, and so Dan, when Dan was framing this book in the context and the narrative, he asked me to help him. And as a dear friend, of which Dan and I have been for um, many years, um, I said yes. And just in starting to, to do the research, I was really just astounded um, with how deeply intertwined apples in that history are in this country specifically in our case of the book but just kind of the greater you know human species they they're inseparable and they're they're just so entwined and entangled and then the development of this country in tandem with with that uh, sort of entanglement just really it really hit home and and got somewhere deep in my soul and just is kind of a part of you know uh, my life's work you might say and so yeah just it's actually my wife Jenny her idea for to name the the cafe Golden Russet, but um, she's also kind of one of the uh, you know 
the freelance editor, so to speak, of the book and was kind of reading all of it. But <laughs> do, you have, uh, do you have any golden russet trees uh, producing apples on the property? Not here. No, not yet. I put in about, I put in seven trees uh, 2020, last spring, but it'll be some time before they fruit. But one of them is, yeah, it's, it's a golden russet and it's growing like a weed. It's, it's mm. yeah. You didn't used to see golden russets, except if you had a property. I have a couple of really ancient ones on my property, must be over, well over 150 years old, the trees Amazing. themselves. And uh, they still produce a few golden russets every now and then. Not, not pretty, and I'm not doing anything to help them along, not pruning them, but they make really nice applesauce, and they make really nice uh, cider. So, lucky me, right? There's a, there's an old anecdote from like mid 19th century from uh, an apple grower in Ohio who was looking for an advice and, and the ad, the advice was uh, if you're going to plant a thousand trees make 999 of them golden russet and the the rest you can choose for yourself is sort of how the advice goes but yeah they're versatile they're great and they they fell from favor as as red and green uh, apples were coming online and, you know, grafting in commercial orchards and markets and blah, blah, blah. And golden russet, as we know, is not the most uh, beautiful fruit. It is in its own ways. But, yeah, the market kind of took to the shinier, brighter red and green orbs. But, anyway, the, uh, that's the golden russet aside. Well, why don't we um, back up a little bit and talk about cider and the history of cider. Um, you guys, you put in a nice little a little history portion in there in the book, and that's what really attracted me to it to see this you know ancient history come up in the in the book so talk a little bit about that and where we how far we've come um dan can you talk to that so apples originate in central asia um if mesopotamia is the middle east is the breadbasket of the world uh and central asia is basically the orchard of the world uh not only are apples native there but most cane fruits blackberries Cherries, pistachios, almonds, all these things kind of originate in Central Asia. Um, and then, you know, over the millennia, they've, they've spread since then. Uh, and they've spread uh, throughout, throughout Asia, um, in, into the Middle East, and throughout, and throughout Europe. And then from Europe, they, they, they moved into North America and South America with the advent of colonialization. Um, when cider, when apples first came here, we were, uh, Europeans were shocked at how well they performed. And at the same time, Europeans kind of created a perfect environment for apples. They basically deforested the landscape. So apple trees, apple seeds were able to come up, come up behind it uh, pretty seamlessly, which is why we have all these amazing wild apples that th thrive throughout the Northeast United States, uh, which is really unique and, and not something that's the case in a lot of the rest of the country. Um so at, th at that point in time, we have this 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 um, uh, cider becomes a part of a, the American diet. Uh, Craig, what around the early 1700s or so, you'd say? You want to take you want to talk about this part of the this part, Craig? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Europeans as they're coming here, they're bringing a relic, something from home. You know, this voyage overseas is it's unknown. They don't know where they're going to land or what to expect. They bring apple seeds. They're small. They're you know, nearly weightless, they're durable. They get here, they plant them, and the ones that are strong enough grow. And it's important to note that apples don't grow true from seed. So any seed planted that grows and produces fruit is going to be a variety unknown to humankind. So to Dan's point about the Northeast being a great 
uh, a great climate and, and region for, for apple growing that happened. And the apples that tasted good were, you know, they were used, they were eaten fresh or baked or, you know, uh, eaten in, in, in some way that kind of sustained the family, the small orchard. Um, but those that were bad were, were likely just found their way to the press and they were fermented for cider. And it was just so, so commonplace that it wasn't, you know, it was hardly talked about. It was just the thing every, you know, farmer and their family had a barrel in the basement or, you know, two or three or 10 or 40, depending on the, the scope and the wealth. But um, cider was just very, very common. And yeah, around probably, yeah, early 18th century, as people kind of figured out how to navigate the the new world so to speak the orchards were were, you know producing and and apples were were there and kind of at the advent of a market system in the northeast apples started to kind of move from place to place and that's when we start to get into specific named varieties but um i think the craig there too so so cider is peaking at north america is around the time of um when farms were still largely self-sufficient entities when, when they were mostly producing um, subsistence crops. Um, it was a product that would be you could produce and maybe have access to sell at market, but apple trees grow well on sparse land, that, on hillsides where you would normally, where you could, great, you could still graze cattle there, but also like you couldn't grow row crops. You definitely couldn't grow field crops there either. Um, so you can grow apples there, no problem. Um, and you'd have... And you have apples, and you could, and you have all the apples, which would be easy to produce into as part of your diversified farm. And then, as Craig's point, um, we di- there is some market engagement in terms of people then selling apples or selling um, cider into cities and things like that. But the downfall of cider in this country comes about when um, we have a professionalization of orcharding um, and the rise of orchards commercial orchards here in this country kind of plays in line with the decline of cider in this country. Um, the first commercial orchard is um, uh, William Livingston uh, Pell, Robert Livingston Pell, um, who is, who is orchards in Osopus, New York. On the west side of the Hudson is the first like commercial orchard. And that's 1821-ish, right, Craig, more or less? I th- early 19th century, 18, yeah. 1830s maybe. And he, he made a business of basically exporting Newtown Pippins from there around the world, especially to the UK. Um, and he made a good deal of money doing that. And if you're grow, and then his business model was exported up and down the Hudson, up and down the Hudson Valley, and then soon across the country. And if you're selling fruit um, for fresh value and it's being shipped as a whole fruit to the UK and be eaten there, you're getting way more money for those apples than you ever would for pressing in the cider and making something that your neighbors would drink. So with that, the emphasis for orcharding moved into those kinds of apples and away from apples that would be um, useful for making cider with. So there, so then what you're saying is there was no interest in commercial cider making. Everyone was producing their own cider for their own consumption? Or... Yeah, there are limited pockets of like commercial cider making. Um, like the, the big one in the East coast is uh, Newark, New Jersey is the apple oh. was the, was the, was the it made champagne method, Tristan method, sparkling uh, cider from four varieties there that are very famous. They're relatively famous varieties. Um, Craig, you want to add something to that? 
Yeah, yeah. So around this time, like 1830s, there was also what was happening on, you know, industrialization was sort of nearing its peak um, in tandem with development of urban centers. And so you had people becoming very, much more efficient at producing goods and products. And so you had this sort of the idea of commodity production of which orchards took that path. And we started to see grafted orchards of, you know, maybe three or four varieties um, meant intended to be eaten fresh. So that's partly because cider was falling from common custom. And with the rise of industrialization, you had a centralized workforce in mill towns um, and just developing urban areas. And in order to control these, these workforces, the employer was kind of, you know, echoing temperance, which was really ramped up in the 1820s, uh, just the demonization of alcohol. So if you want a reliable workforce, don't drink. And cider, of course, being alcoholic was one of the many beverages, in, you know, that fell kind of into the uh, into the shadow, so to speak, from a common cultural custom. So people are drinking less and orchards are being planted for fresh eating. And those two kind of things just created a riff that you could argue until now was not really being like sewn back together. And, and if you are going to um, produce alcohol in a, as the country urbanized, if you're going to make alcohol and serve alcohol in the new country, in the new urban economy, like beer is so much easier to produce. Like you <laughs> may, it's, you know, the, you know, the bring in apples, you can just produce it on, uh, on site, quick turnover, it's much more straightforward to produce than trying to trying to make cider in a in an urban environment. Oh, and the rum trade drove you know must have driven uh, right. There's so much uh, easier too. things. There's so much easier things to do to make cider on a on um, unless you're getting a, a price point for it. But at that point in time, there was no high value cider really. Um, it was mostly. Uh, People drank it because it was there, kind right. of thing. So let's talk about the temperance, and then you know, a few years later, the uh, you know prohibition. I mean, initially they they made exception for. I thought they made some exception for cider and, and orchards. Early temperance writing um, does uh, is basically mostly focused on hard spirits. It's definitely focused on 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 rum and uh, other distilled spirits, uh, and basically ignores is a lot of like amazing i think one of the best writing quotes best quotes i found from that time period talks about um it was it was a like new york pomological association from the from like the 1830s let's say about that time period and it's talking about how we can get people to drink cider and so we need to change the name from cider to to malice wine like which is like a hilarious idea that people still try and revisit every few years or so now <laughs> Not 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 recently, but about five years ago, people were like, "We need to forget. We need to make a new name for cider." It was a pretty funny <laughs> idea for us to think about um, entertain. But um, they, and like one of the guys, when the guy says like, "I went to Spain," uh, and like in countries where people drink wine, there is no there is no drunkenness, which is like I think a hilarious idea of him like, <laughs> like of this correlation between like wine and sobriety, which is a, a pretty funny, um, pretty pretty funny thing. Um, so by this time, um, so temperance comes in effect and, and cider is excluded, but then later temperance movements, writings in the later part of the century definitely include cider as part of that, as part of the bad, the bad things. Um, and, but, 
by the time prohibition actually happens, like there is a, often an analogy of people, there's often a story told in Summer Cider where people like were out chopping down cider orchards, but the like, and to destroy these orchards because we're making cider, but it never actually happened because um, there were no orchards to destroy. Like as you just said, there was no one was grow. There were probably a handful of orchards growing apples for heart for alcoholic cider in the country by the time prohibition happened. So there was no destruction of them. They just the 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 orchards and the orchards were never there in the first place to actually destroy. Craig, do you want to add anything to my my rant my rants and raving? My no no no, that's accurate. Just I, I'll echo the uh, the uh, frustration in reading about that and just people. It seems to just be the softball that people accept is reality that orchards were being chopped down for prohibition. But to Dan's point, it was sort of nearly one hundred years prior. Cider was already kind of vanishing from from the cultural norm, and we uh, we talk about the election of uh, William Henry Harrison in 1840, who he ran on the log cabin and hard cider campaign, kind of you know uh, portraying cider as this like relic bit of nostalgia from the past. And I'm the approachable man, like I'm the everyman, and you know I'm I'm a poor farmer just like all of us once were, and vote for me, kind of a thing, uh, using cider kind of ironically already in as early as 1840, 90 years before Prohibition. Now, I'm, I was very impressed. Um, your book, really, just American Cider. I mean, that's a great name, first of all. Um, it really just gives so much um, like history and movement along the way. And I particularly was struck by a phrase that you use. And you said that, Cider embodies the best and worst of America's history and agricultural practices. Now, I can think of a couple of things to ascribe to that, but um, you want to talk about that that phrase a little bit and what what you meant by this? I mean, it's certainly not again, certainly not a metaphor, but it is. It you're really talking about what it did to. You know, I'll talk about the, the Craig, I'll talk about the worst, and you talk about the best. How about that? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I have the easy part now. So, so the worst of it is that basically, like, uh, well, cider is a colonialist intervention to North America, where it's it's definitely an intrusive thing that came in and destroyed a lot of other stuff, and um, apple trees, you know, replaced a lot of things that were here beforehand. And our contemporary apple movement today is is um, a reaction largely to the errors of the last 50, 100 years or so, where I was saying earlier, where we basically have destroyed apple farming in this country, where we've driven it to a point where prices are really low, almost um, artificially low, and that cider is a reaction against, against those really artificially low prices. Um, like Part of the reason why is that in the early eight, in the late 80s, um, mass amounts of orchards in, in, southern China, in northern China came online, and basically tank the tank the commodity like really bulk commercial apple product market. I mean like concentrated apple juices and things like that really just destroy the market. And it basically has never recovered since. Not only for the Chinese orchards, but other orchards in Poland and in, in Turkey and places like that. That basically have that orchards that were here can't compete with that, which is why we saw in the eighties orchards pivoting to U picks or or things like that, or just going out of business. Um and and Insider is a like it, it has a lot of has a lot of problems in terms of 
finding its path and it creates a, a certain amount of elitism to it and people trying to make leading these kind of wine connotations to it. But at the same time, it's a really hopeful beverage that we can try and do something different with it. So the best of the agricultural practices <laughs> in history. <laughs> Craig, you're yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> it's sort of, it's, it's, it's hard to talk about the best without talking about the worst and, and acknowledging it and kind of, like Dan was saying, learning from it and moving forward. But, you know, a lot of the information we found was kind of, um, it's important to just kind of lay the fact that the domineering culture in this country is one of white Europeans. And so that was kind of a lot of the historic information documentation we came across was was that because it supports the, the dominant culture. Um, but it ignores the contributions from folks who were not white Europeans, but were also uh, very knowledgeable in some instances, more than the aristocratic elite that we hear about often who were cider connoisseurs and blah, 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 when it was, you know, in some cases, they're slaves or just other other uh, communities doing doing the work of providing the knowledge. But um, the, the great part about cider then and now is that regardless of how much information there's about one fact or the other, it was a very inclusive um inclusive beverage and pursuit and growing trees and everybody did it. Everyone had an orchard. Uh, it was not really exclusionary and it's kind of, you know, it shows, uh, I think it, John Bunker, if I'm not mistaken, calls the apple, the great bipartisan fruit. And in a way it's sort of, it's something that we can all relate to. And it, it just really, you know, it, it it's a unifying fruit uh, at the end of the day. It really is. And I, I think that's the great, the greatness of apples and cider. And, and to add to that, we, um, and moving today, like um, orchard, these small scale orchards that are popping out the country now. We didn't mention this earlier, but the growth of cider has been crazy. Like um, 100 years ago, I'm uh, sorry, in 20 years ago, there were 10 cideries in the United States. Um, there were 100 uh, a decade ago. Now there's close to 1,000 today. Wow. Um, which is a crazy growth. And some of that growth is coming from these existing orchards. And it's also happening from these small, new small orchards that are coming online. And these new small orchards are, are redefining what it means to to make and operate small farm, what small scale farming can look like in this country, um, which involves um, which involves creating a, a really great product and to grow in this really great fruit is to create a really well valued value added product to it. Um, it. I think there's a lot of amazing parallels in the apple world and the in the milk world and the cheese world because. Uh, the milk industry is uh, also pretty hard and bad prices and broken industry and cheese became a way for, for small farms to stay competitive and actually like make a business that actually can exist and survive. And, and, and cider is giving that route for people and it's, it's doing it in a way that is um, like creates uh, like really good land stewardship programs. These are some like, um, talking with folks at Finger Lake Cider House, which is Kite and String Cider, they, they basically took a, was a sterile dead cornfield and converted into this amazing bio, biodiverse landscape um, through tree fruit. And it's a really amazing uh, way to restore the landscape in a really unique way and create better land stewardship, uh, which is going to be really important in the, in the next next decades to come uh, and, how we, and how we can do that. And in places like California um, with water issues, like it's really sad seeing all these new, um, there was a big controversy this summer about um, like very vocal people about about climate change in California tearing out old trees and 
putting in uh, grapevines in Sonoma County, which require a lot more water, require a lot more inputs than like hundred year old apple trees do that are still productive. Like, and, and understanding that, like what the cider looks like in the, in the future from that, in that perspective is, is very interesting and very important. An interesting thing, just looking at like land stewardship, um, there wasn't, we saw a lot of history. It was exploitive, both of people and of land. But if you look at the Dust Bowl, I'm, how much further proof do you need of, of you know, uh, taking too much without any sort of cautionary hesitance, you know, and just kind of look at the outcome. So understanding apples and, you know, to Dan's point about the Sonoma County situation, just they really, and that's why they were planted to begin with, because they you planted them once, you didn't need a seasonal sowing, you just, they were fairly, you could neglect them and they would thrive in some instances, most instances, and you just harvest them once a year. And that's kind of the contribution. You don't need to spray, you don't need to water. And so, yeah, from a viability standpoint, it's much more economical and, and you know, uh, good for the land in the long run, which is things that we need to consider. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, I want to talk about the actual physical product itself, cider, and how it's made and how it tastes and what you can tell me about that. So stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, The tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush, green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old-world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheese-making craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Okay, I'm back and I'm speaking with Dan Pucci and Craig Cavallo. They are the authors of a very recently published book called American Cider, A Modern Guide to a Historic Beverage. And we talked um, early in the show about, you know, the history of cider, of apples, of, um, and not a whole lot about cider making. But now cider making is this, this huge industry. As Dan, you said, there were what, more than how many thousand? More than, a th- more than, it's 1,000 in the country. About in, a thousand in every, cider. In, in every state. Wow. Um, so how, what, how would you compare the cider of the colonial days, not that, you have it in your taste, but but from what you know and what you've you know heard and read, compared to what's being produced today, or let's even say not that far back, you could even say you know cider of of uh, the, you know the nineteen sixties and seventies and what we have today. Um, cider back then was pretty rough. It seems like um, I think there's a um, there's an article there's an article about from. Um, this guy Trowbridge, who's a like writes in the probably is after Columbia, probably eighteen eighties or so. It basically says like in the it's a book he wrote about cider making. He talks all about how like it's all terrible. Like everything you guys make is, is the worst. Like it's like eighty percent of the cider 
produced in the country is god awful and undrinkable. Um, and there is some good descriptions out there of products, uh, more in the UK than here in this country. Um, but it is usually considered like a golden liquid. It's very pretty. Um, even in that time period, like William Cox, who is this, um, wrote this book in 1805 or so talks a lot about um, like his varieties that he uses, which is like, he likes it's uh wine sap hues and I forgot the other variety he uses. It's wine sap hues and one other variety. Um, and he like talks a lot about it and, and russet russets are referred to quite a bit as well. Um, and Newtown Pippin, I talked about earlier also. So we know the varieties that are being used back then. Um, and we can generally make assumptions on how it would end up tasting, which would be um, probably fairly similar um, to some people's cider today, but not all cider making today. We've, we understand how yeast works, for example. So we um, have a better understanding of how things operate. Um, but I think we, we've, we've changed a lot in the last 50 years too. Like um, Martinelli's was to making hard, hard cider until the 1970s. Huh. Um, but in terms of, yeah, I, I, I think, I think we've, we've improved a lot. And I think part of the fun about cider is that we're always improving. Like, um, in the last 10 years, we've improved a lot in quality in the next five, last five years have gone huge growth in terms of the, the quality of cider being produced today in the country. So, um, I think there's gonna be a lot more of that and we're going to keep on an up, upward path of, of, of really increased quality. Well, you say we know a lot more about yeast and things. Is there any... Is that the major shift? What was the ma- What would you say would be either one of you with a major shift or change in um, in how cider is produced today? I think come probably comes down to s- the science of it, just the understanding of yeast and a fermentation. But also, I think cleanliness is probably a huge factor in in uh, having more successful ferments today than were happening 100 or 150 years ago. Um, but I, I think those two things definitely, in uh, in the vessels, the way in which people are doing it. I mean, we've you know historically people have been using barrels, oak barrels, wood barrels, um, but different vessels and just different ways of crushing the fruit and pressing the fruit and just kind of the the consistent cleanliness through the whole process is making a much more compelling and sound in in uh, dynamic beverage. Most likely, of course, I wasn't around back then, but I imagine the cleanliness is just. Uh, <laughs> You know, it wasn't something that, you know, people are doing it to make a living now. And I think that that changes the way you go about doing things. Sure. I mean, yeah, that's it's. And what about regulations? Is there, are, were there more stringent regulation today? And I mean, if you're going to sell it on, on the market to the market. Yeah. yeah. I think my favorite regulation uh, thing about that was that um, there really, it really wasn't regulated for a large part of the history. Uh, we didn't, it wasn't really taxed very well. And that was, again, one of the things too, because we were making it at home, it wasn't necessarily taxed. It was part of a pretty informal economy and definitely not really regulated. And, and actually, one of a lot of our problems we have with cider today is that basically when they wrote all the alcohol laws post prohibition, cider didn't get included in a lot of those alcohol laws. Um, so in the last, as cider has risen in popularity, cider has been shoehorned into existing legislation, into existing laws. Uh, so it kind of fall it, so you're either so you're who you're, 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 you can be a cidery and be regulated by four different agencies, uh, and, and your packaging is very different and we can't, 
we can't list things like, um, for example, like the Finger Lakes is a AVA. We can't list the word Finger Lakes on a bottle of cider because it's a AVAs are restricted to uh, grape wine beverages. And if you make things that's not grape wine, you can't list it on the label. Um, so we can't list Finger Lakes. Hudson Valley was fine for a very long time, although people were getting dinged for it recently because uh, the AVA is called Hudson River Valley Region. Uh, and we were getting somewhat dinged sometimes in Hudson Valley. Um, so it's been this huge issue where we haven't been, we weren't regulated properly then, and now we're playing catch up in a lot of capacities. Well, you talk a lot in your book about um, um, the language of cider. So that brings me to thinking about what for the, um, about the taste of cider. And obviously it's changed a lot more today. Um, a little more refined. Uh, I was surprised to taste cider that I, you could have told me it was cider. Number one, it wasn't effervescent really, or not, not hardly effervescent. And it was crisp and dry as a bone. And, you know, I did sense that it wasn't a grape wine. <laughs> so <clears throat> I pegged it as a cider then. But for the novice, what should one expect when they taste cider? I, I think a lot of what you just said, it's crisp, it's bright, um, generally high acid. Uh, it's very refreshing. Uh, one of the, the things that makes it so fun to drink is that it's a lower ABV. Um, generally around here in New York and the Northeast, cider tends to be around 7% or so. Um, but it also, that, that lower ABV allows a lot of the phenolics that exist in apples to just really come through. Uh, higher alcohol, 13 14 15% can sometimes mask impurities, but as this, you know, lower ABV, there's really a chance to kind of like taste the fruit. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason it's so fun to drink cider. Um, but it, it depends. It depends on how it's made. It depends on how it's, it's aged, if not, or if it ferments in oak or steel. Um, you know, there's a lot of different things you can taste, but I think generally speaking, uh, a well-made cider, you're going to find a great balance of same things you find a balance of in wine, and that's acid and, and tannin and you know, sweetness, sugar, um, ciders mostly being fermented to dry. Uh, that's probably a larger part of the category rather than some cider having residual sugar, which gives you a perceived sweetness. So fruit forward. Um, but I think just generally speaking, kind of, if it's sparkling, it's light, it's bright, it's punchy, uh, it's delicious and super refreshing. But more importantly, let's be open about the experience because there's a huge range of flavors that exist exist here. We have kind of big, brooding, rich, caramelized, golden russet flavors that are like apricots and peaches and stewed and, and, and lanolin versus like Wixen, which is like rose petals and bright and acid and punchy. Um, or we have like some like rough and tumbled scrumpy, which is... You know, a little acidic and a little funky and earthy and herby and all those jazz. There's a huge range of flavors of apples, and um, we can find this in this cider too. Huh, interesting. Um, it's uh, uh, the question I had was how long, generally speaking, or does it does it range like winemaking? How long does cider have to lay down before it can be bottled? Um, it depends. You can make. Uh, like if you go to the grocery store and buy a six pack of cider and cans, those ciders are probably um, those ciders can be on the can be packaged and on the shelf in uh, less than three weeks from wow. 
from from Apple to think to Apple product to whatever it is. But you know, um, most uh, cetera, we're talking about in that book mostly mostly deals with things that would be packaged in 750 or 750 like vessels or things or intentions at that, at that price point. Uh, and those can take up to a, a year, 18 months, two years. Um, no, no problem. Like if we have um, fermentation that takes six months or so, and then goes in the bottle and goes for champagne method, like uh, our friends, Matt and Kim, who are over in Asopus, who, who orchard are, are, they have metal house cider and their orchards are on the old orchards where um, the Pell orchards were. They they do all their champagne method ciders and Craig you bought them the other day and they're all at least three or four years old. Yeah, some yeah they're still they have things that are from 2017, and that's large. That's like incredibly unheard of. Yeah, for cider, and, but but it's delicious and not. So I, like Eric does it too. A Redbird does lots of amazing cider that like that is on the market that's that old and, and it takes that time to really mature and kind of come together and show off some of its real potential. Has the market kind of kept up with, let's say, the you know, the quality of that and willingness to spend the extra dollars for that product? I think now it has. Um, it's been hard a few years ago. It was definitely more challenging, um, but I think the quality of the product has increased a lot. And uh, I, but Craig sells <laughs> more cider than I do these days, yeah. so he, he, he can he can speak to that. But. Um, I think people are totally willing. I think as beer prices have increased dramatically and people have been totally willing to spend more on beer than were a few years ago, like it's been totally fine. It's been a lot. Craig, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's climbing and it's a slow climb. And as a cider maker, I would think in some instances you want that climb to happen a little more quickly. Um, but it's a slow climb. I, I still generally speaking, like we don't have any cider at the store that's a, a more than like 26 might be the highest. And to me, understanding what goes into it, maybe more than the average consumer, I think it's absurd that people aren't paying like 40 or $45 for these ciders Matt and Kim make uh, because it's champagne. It just, it just isn't champagne. So nobody's willing to pay $65 because it's, it's from apples and it's not, it's not that, that uh, like that comfort of, you know, you spend $65 on a bottle of champagne if you're, if you're of able means. And it's like, you don't feel bad about it. There's no buyer's remorse because it's like, yeah, it's champagne. It's a thing. It's like ingrained in all of us. But cider is 35 You know, it's just not quite there, but ho- hopefully it's on the up and up for, for many reasons. Right, right. Well, so that, uh, that was one of my questions for you is that's what are your predictions for cider's future? I think that's part of it. I think the price point will will you know, continue to increase in some instances, but that's certainly not the most important part of cider. Uh, I think we're just going to continue to see really dynamic beverages and people, you know, people learning more in the cellar and seeing that reflected in the final product. But we're also, you know, people every year are putting in new orchards and so new fruit's going to be coming online and that's going to affect what's in the bottle. But I think the future of cider is, is truly limitless. Um, you know, it's not a category that you can put boxes around. There, there's just so many apple varieties. There's so much to learn. There's so many different ways you can go about making it. And that coupled with just people getting better at the craft is it stand, you know, cider is just going to continue to be an incredibly dynamic category. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's 14,000 varieties of apples have been documented to be grown in North America. Um, and like there's always, and the, 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 there's more and more on command line every, every day, every year. Um, I had one today 
Craig, I was at, I was over at, um, at Rose Hill earlier today, by my house, the orchard by my house. And I had, um, Kevin gave me, orchard manager gave me, he had 15 of the apples from this year. They have 10 trees of a variety called nail biter. That is, huh. that was, it's a, it's a variety from this, that this guy, Matt Kaminsky, who's a forager apple dude in Western mass cultivated. He selected this variety from a wild cutting he found and he introduced it and it's growing here on trees by my house. And I had, it's a, the, one of the most intensely delicious cider apples I've ever had. It was so tannic. You ate it, you bite, you bit into the apple and it was like, Oh my God, tannin. I'm like, Oh my God, there's so much sugar here. This apple is so sweet. And Oh my God, it's so tart that, Oh my God, it's so tannic. Uh, it was, it's, and it was this big apple too. It was a crazy thing. Um, it was a real. It almost looked like it almost looked like um, the coloration was different, but it had the shape of like a golden, del- like a red delicious. It was a totally weird apple because um, of how intense it was. Um, but that's the feature, and that's what's so exciting about cider is that like we can have we can have this conversation. It's really unique, and there's thousands of these experiments happening around the, around the, around the, around the country. It it just makes it super fun. No, nobody's there's no boundaries people are trying to weasel their way into. So people are willing to take chances and often cases, you know, those chances are going to look, they're going to pay off or if they don't, you learn from it and move on. But the fact that the cider community is willing to take chances makes it, um, it's awesome. Yeah. It's it's exciting. It's really exciting. One thing that I wanted to, um, to tell our listeners about your book is that aside from all this wonderful information that you've, you know, so willingly shared with me today, um, you, you mention and you talk a lot about um, all the different regions in the United States, which was surprising to me, some of the regions where apples are growing, where ciders is being made. And um, I guess I was just surprised. I didn't think that apples really grew in some of those places, Arizona, for instance. Um, what to you, what do you think are some of the most surprising regions that people might not think apples um, are part of their agriculture? Well, in, in the research, I think in early like 1900s, northern, the two most northern counties in Arkansas were the leading producing counties of apples. Huh. And that has since changed, of course. Um, but that was, I was just, you know, Arkansas, you don't think that far south, but um, to your point about Arizona, the mountains, you know, there's apples growing at 10, 12, 15,000 feet. And that's crazy to, to read about and learn about. But um, I think one of the most compelling places today that's standing on the past and, and really pushing, you know, apples of yesterday into tomorrow uh, is Montezuma County in southwest Colorado. It's kind of just this, like, it's a mountain town. Well, mountain town, it's a valley, and it's like six hours from any major metropolis. So historically, there was no real growing for market because you couldn't get there uh, over the mountains. It was just very, like, localized. But there's still tons of really old trees, and people are making some really great cider um, down in, in, in the valley in the mountains of southwest Colorado, and that was, that was cool to learn about. Um. I, so I, what I, the reason I wanted to mention that, too, is because um, it's for anyone who wants to take a tour of apples and vineyards. I mean, this book serves as a real guide. I mean, not only is it, you know, a roadmap to the culture and the background and the history, but it's a, it's a literal roadmap to, uh, to where all these orchards are and where they exist. And 
I find that fascinating. And I, I look forward to all kinds of wonderful things to come in the cider industry. And you guys will certainly help that. Now, tell me, Craig, you are producing cider in, in where? Well, I, just, I don't, I don't make it. I, um, not commercially. I, not oh, commercially. Not com- okay. I make it for friends and family and out of uh, curiosity. But just like the I run a cafe. <laughs> um, I run a grocery store with my wife, uh, Golden Russet Cafe and Grocery, and um, in the Hudson Valley. I'm I'm near Dan. He's about 20 minutes north of me in the town north. Um, but yeah, that's that's been my main pursuit for July 2019. We opened the store and it's going well, and we're we're you know learning a bunch, but cider's become a huge part of it, and we're finding it's working really well. People are happy to engage in the conversation. I think the book helps is sort of, you know, I'm not just some babbling idiot in an apron. Uh, <laughs> maybe suggests I know a thing or two, which I might, but again, to you know, we're all still learning, so there's no finite information here, but um, yeah, that's grocery store. Oh, congratulations. Cafe and groceries. And Dan, well, are you making cider? No, I am. I, no, just drinking, <laughs> drinking just all drinking, of mine, drinking and talking about it. Um, That's great. I, no, I, I, don't, I don't make it. I, I, I'm all into the into the communication and, and research and the experience of it. And there's so much more to learn and explore with the beverage. Yeah, that, I mean, you know, can't do everything, right? No, <laughs> can't do everything. <laughs> yeah, well, he gets pretty close though. I, I congratulate you both on the book because it really is for you know, it's not a huge book, but boy, oh boy, is there a lot packed in there. And your information on uh, that you have, you know, traveled through the the stories of apples and orchards and and cider is truly wonderful. And thank you so much for sharing with me today. You bet. Yeah, our pl- our pleasure. Time, Thanks so much. Great. Okay. Thanks for having us. And thank you all for listening. And tune in again to another taste of the past. A taste of the past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.